I think seeing applications and then theory and doing them in tandem, you'll find that school is way more fulfilling that way. So instead of this kind of old methodology, which is like learn all the theory and then later in your career, see it in practice. So I think pairing the two is really helpful. Hey everyone, welcome back to the It's a Material World podcast. I'm Puni, and alongside me is David. How's it going, David? What's new? Pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah, I'm back in my apartment this week, so uh, the travel has kind of subsided a little bit. But overall, just uh, going well. Excited for Fourth uh, of July holiday, so I'm ready to take a break. What about you? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Honestly, didn't even realize it's coming up so soon, um, <laughs> but <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what the plans end up being, but I'm excited, you know, much warmer weather, right? So I've been trying to take advantage of that as much as possible. Like in Minneapolis, the summers are most beautiful, you know, weather's, weather's nice, get to go outside a lot. And what helps with that is, especially if you're you're working, right, is having business wear that kind of is inspired by athletic wear. And that's what we talk about today. We brought on Gihan, who is the uh, president of Ministry of Supply, co-founder as well. And I'm actually wearing one of the shirts, the Apollo shirts from Ministry of Supply. And it's super breathable. It's very comfortable. And it's also like a dress shirt, you know? And so we really talked about the technology, the material science behind it all. And he's been passionate about this this type of uh, clothing technology since a very young age. So before we get into it, I wanted to see if you you had any highlights that you wanted to bring to the forefront, things to look forward to in the episode. I think just the way that, uh, to be honest, we're talking about clothing so much, we didn't really talk about fashion as much as like technical design. I thought that was super interesting because, of course, all the shirts look nice, but they really focus on some of the really cool innovations they made. So my favorite was when he talked about the phase change materials in the fibers, kind of the process of how they iterated until they found the best configuration and how that helps us retain heat when we go cold into a cold office or also stay cold when we go into the sun for a while. I thought that was super interesting. And also the fact that the fibers can like self iron themselves and how we think about it and how we think about these technologies from a materials point of view rather than like a fashion point of view, which was a, a completely different approach to what we've talked about before when we talked about reusable polymers in fashion. Sure. And I particularly liked, like, it was cool because I'm wearing the Apollo shirt right now. And he was talking about incorporating like NASA level technology from the temperature control, temperature regulation standpoint, you know, um, and then also like phase change materials, right? It's just cool to see how that's incorporated into exactly what I'm wearing. So that's something that we cover in the episode in detail. And then another thing that I, I found particularly fascinating is, like I said, he knew from a very young age exactly like what he wanted to do. You know, he wanted to, you know, create the next Gore-Tex, this outdoor-esque technology, very comfortable kind of athletic wear, business wear combination. And so from there, I asked him, right, like, how did you curate your path through college, right, and internships as well? to help get you to where you want to be. And he gave some very sound advice, you know, incorporating talking to mentors and exactly what to focus on with your summers as well as your coursework to get you where you want to be if you already know exactly what you're passionate about. So lots to look forward to in this episode. He was very passionate. So it was very, 
exciting episode. Without further ado, let's get into it. Hello, everyone. So for this week's guest, I want to give a warm welcome to Gihan Amari Siri Wardena, co-founder and president of Ministry of Supply. Ministry of Supply is a company focused on creating better engineered businessware with a focus on in- enabling adaptation to different environments, uh, work travel, potentially like biking to work, right? Um, so different different things to that where these work clothes, these traditional work clothes can also be adapted to um, potentially more on-the-go or movement-based environments. So Gihan co-founded Ministry of Supply while he was finishing his bachelor's in chemical and biological engineering from MIT in 2010, and has been leading the company since then. Gihan is a proven leader in the businessware industry, thanks to his dedication and his unique scientific approach. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm an avid listener, so I'm excited to chat with you guys. Awesome. Well, let's just start off by breaking down the inspiration for Ministry of Supply. I understand that you were a pretty good cross-country runner. Did this have anything uh, to do with motivating you to design workout clothes that are inspired by athletic wear uh, and then also be able to double as like what you could wear to the office, but also what you could wear to work out? I grew up as a as a Boy Scout actually here in New England, um, you know, just outside Boston. And we get really cold, windy wet winters and then uh, hot, humid summers. And that was kind of a, you know, since I was, you know, 12 uh, years old, kind of going on campouts, uh, that was kind of the, the experience of realizing like, hey, you're, you're in these kind of extreme environments and it has a big impact, the clothing that you're wearing in terms of, you know, how comfortable you are, how long you're going to stay out there. And that's really where I kind of started to fall in love with materials like Gore-Tex and Polar Tech started going to like EMS pretty much every weekend and and browsing the racks, looking at the hang tags. That was my favorite part. And looking at the like the material blowups that they would illustrate to show like how Gore-Tex worked or Polar Tech Windblock, for example. And so started actually making my own outdoor gear with some fellow scouts. Uh, we, we started by actually taking polar fleece and we wanted to make a windproof fleece so we took like polyethylene film uh, just like kind of like a you know stuff that you'd, you'd use to prevent um, paint from spilling around and we would laminate it using an iron for example and we made a vest out of it and uh, uh went and decided to go skiing and we we quickly realized that yes it did block wind but it also blocked any sweat from going through and so that was kind of the the first experience with you know a, a true performance material right you have to really kind of think about optimization on, on many different dimensions, not just air transfer, but also moisture transport as well. So, you know, kind of the, the follow-up to that was uh, we, we learned about Tyvek home wrap and uh, started going dumpster diving and getting Tyvek home wrap and using that because that is a, it's a, a non-woven material that's a kind of plastic fiber essentially, but it allows, uh, it's a porous membrane. And so it allows moisture transfer throughout the, the fabric. So it was kind of like a cheap version of Gore-Tex, but for, for a bunch of high school students, it was a fun way to make our own waterproof, breathable jackets and, and rain gear. You know, would would continue kind of making some other things like, um, you know, realizing, for example, when you're camping, like you compress all the insulation on the back of your sleeping bag. So it really doesn't provide that much insulative value. So we started taking Mylar space blankets, which provides retroflective insulation and basically, you know, that radiative heat transfer. Uh, what we did is we, we ran through my parents' paper shredder 
and uh, made this kind of fibrous insulation and made sleeping bags with that. At that point, I didn't really know about uh, angle angle of reflection and whatnot. But you know, for us, it was, it was a cool way to start hacking our own materials, and that's what what I really you know uh, fell in love with was this idea that we could make our own materials build a product and go test it that weekend, right? And it was this iterative design process and and really realizing that materials were something that just had such a big impact. So kind of what, what where that took us with, with Ministry Supply was really, you know, when I applied to MIT, I, was, uh, I said, I wanted to start a Gore-Tex or a Polar-Tex, sent in all my prototypes of materials and started kind of plotting a course through college. I studied chemical and biological engineering, which um, allowed me to still do some of the kind of um, synthetic biology research that I was just super interested in, but then also do materials as well. So yeah, it was, it was something that was super cool. A couple of courses that I thought were super helpful. And one was this lab that I was working in where we were doing polymeric resins to figure out how we could absorb any um, alcohols from this biobutanol bat. And that's where I started learning about polymers and really understanding you know, how the fundamental structure was uh, impacting, for example, how we could absorb moisture vapor, for example, or in this case, alcohol. Another internship was at the Sports Tech Institute in the UK, where we were working with British Paralympians and designing racing spikes for them, doing 3D printing of SLS with nylon to make uh, uh, spike plates for a British Paralympian and customizing it for his gait. And you know what I started to realize was there was all these different experiences. Um, and actually, um, Kim Blair, who was on the, the podcast earlier, was, was one of my advisors. And he really kind of helped me guide this, this course through college um, to say, like, all right, you're interested in materials, you're interested in, in have sports materials applications. Let's put together, you know, some research, you know, an internship, for example, that's going to be focused on that. And even figuring out, like, even your core research, your core you know, curriculum, for example, in chemical engineering, we have this like kind of junior capstone class, which is uh, all about, you know, developing an experiment and working with an industrial partner. And we were working with the U.S. military to help develop waterproof coatings for tents. And we were finding there's this issue with soldiers, you know, taking these tents out, brand new tents that had been in a container for two years. And there's hydrolysis that had happened. And so they'd use these tents and rain would just come right through. And so we developed a new waterproof membrane there and using polyethylene instead. And it was really cool experience to be able to say like, hey, if you're interested in materials, you can find a way to, to actually apply into other other majors as well, right? And through your coursework as well. So yeah, towards the end of my career uh, at school, I, there's two classes. One was called How to Make Almost Anything, learned all about additive manufacturing and, and, and kind of making various products through digital manufacturing techniques, which we now use. But then also an internship at um, a product design firm, uh, IDEO, where I just realized like, I really love the product design part of the materials of, you know, figuring out a material, figuring out a problem and actually finding that solution space there um, with them. So while at that point in college, I started thinking, okay, less about actually fundamental materials development, but let's look at more applications and, and product. And, you know, I'd grown up in, in, you know, kind of the 2000s witnessing, you know, as a cross-country runner, like I, I used to run in like cotton running shirts uh, in cold rain and, and get freezing cold or, you know, hot summer days and, 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 and be soaked in sweat, right? And so this transition to Nike Dry Fit, Under Armour, for example, happened. And it started to become this question of, well, why hasn't this happened elsewhere in the clothing that we wear? And it's this interesting wave uh, that's happened, which is that, you know, most clothing that we wore used to be made out of cotton about 15 years ago. And now it's actually changed to polyester um, and synthetic materials in the past 15 years alone. So it's much slower than perhaps the switch to, to mobile phones, for example, but it is a massive change in the materials that, that people are wearing. So 
it's changed our perspective on kind of what we can do. So no longer do we have to think about, you know, when we think about performance materials, we often think about moisture management, right? We think about stretch. And as I was kind of biking around campus, I was uh, talking to one of my teammates on the cross-country team, and he was working at Fidelity Investments, would take the red line, our, our subway here in Boston, and it, it's not really AC'd. He would you know, shower in the morning, 7 a.m., <laughs> sweat through his shirt and get to the office and he'd be a hot mess and also would be shivering because now he's he's sweated, but now he's in his overacid office. So we just heard this problem statement of, okay, a dress shirt you know, doesn't solve the problems that people are, are facing. You come in wrinkled, you come in sweaty, and then you're cold by the time you get into the office. And so that was kind of the spark of like, okay, how do we actually kind of this, take this kind of the same approach, but solve the problem of reinventing the dress shirt? So that was kind of the inspiration for Ministry Supply. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. So you were kind enough to send us uh, Apollo shirts and I'm wearing it right now yeah. and super breathable. You know, I definitely feel that difference between a dress shirt and the Ministry of Supply Apollo shirt. And one thing that I read on your website, some of your products incorporate a NASA technology for controlling temperature. I believe I read about phase change materials as well. Can you briefly describe what role this technology plays and what your general like technological process is for implementing this NASA grade tech into textiles? So, uh, you know, one of the, the, the challenges that we would keep on hearing is right this like, you know, you, you go from a uh, AC department, for example, hot subway, very cold office, right? Massive temperature swings. And one of our, our, our team members was actually working at the um, Human Systems Lab at MIT, which focused on spacesuit development. And we became familiar with phase change materials through that because astronauts see, you know, negative 250 degrees Fahrenheit in the shadows, you know, when they're working outside on EV, you know, extravehicular activity. And then in the sunlight, can be 250 degrees, right? These massive temperature swings. And most of that temperature regulation is done through a, um, a coolant loop that's in the suit, quick cooling system. And that's pretty efficient. But when you come to when it comes to like gloves and like places where you need high dexterity, they use face change materials because it allows it to have a very, very kind of thin layer that's absorbing and releasing heat. And so what a face change material is, it's, and our case is actually very simple. It's, um, it's actually paraffin wax. And so it happens to have a phase transition from a solid to liquid phase right around your skin temperatures, around like 80, 85 degrees. And what ends up happening, there's actually a couple different chain lengths that we have. And so one's at 85 degrees, one's at 87, one's at 90 degrees. And so what it allows us to do is when a material goes to that phase transition, it actually absorbs energy, right? So it's absorbing thermal energy, but it maintains the same temperature. And so what it allows us to feel is we're actually feeling cooler because all this heat is being absorbed into the material, into the core of the fiber, but it's not raising the temperature of the garment. So that's been used in spacesuits. We actually worked with a partner in Outlast to actually, um, in our original version of the Apollo uh, garment, we printed the phase change materials in uh, what's called a, a microencapsulated format. So it's a, it's a wax in a, a polyester bead essentially, and then we print it on the surface of the fabric. And so what this does is it actually absorbs that heat and actually cools you down about one to two degrees in these these temperature transitions. So that was actually the kind of the, the first application that, that we had of it. Now, with any materials kind of challenge, um, okay, we, we've solved the temperature regulation part, but what about kind of the, the user experience? And so one of the things we realized is Back then, people people were still dry cleaning their shirts a lot, and our customers would, you know, they love the performance of the garment, but then they take it to the dry cleaner, you know, in two or three times. Even though you can machine wash it, it was just part of their kind of usual cycle. They're dry cleaning their suits anyways, 
in the dry cleaning process would actually basically cause the phase change material to, to wash off because it's a you know organic solvent essentially. So what we ended up doing was actually in, extruding it into the core of the fiber. So now it's actually in the core of the fiber and it can't wash out. So um, that's something that's really cool. And we've, we're now in actually our fourth generation of the Apollo fabric. So it's now we have one that's uh, it's a recycled polyester fiber. It's got paraffin wax. And now the paraffin wax itself is actually made from rapeseed oil, kind of like a similar to canola oil. And it's uh, bio-based. So it's no longer petroleum-based paraffin wax. So yeah, it's it's pretty cool to kind of see this material evolve as well in terms of its application. Um, so it's one of our flagship materials. We actually launched this product on Kickstarter. And uh, yeah, that was that was kind of where we were really able to tell that story. Um, you know, in Kickstarter, you get kind of two minutes to, to tell a video story about the product. And this story of the thermal battery really resonated with people with phase change materials, a material that can absorb, charge up with heat and then release it back to you when you get to that over AC office. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I've always wondered when you talk about it, it's very hard to imagine how small they are. So how much of this paraffin wax do you need to make a significant change or I guess how much energy can it store before you start to heat up again? So it's really good in these kind of like transient environments. Like it's not going to continue to absorb heat over, you know, like a half hour, an hour stage. It's on the order of minutes that we can absorb kind of excess heat. So your your body, your torso, for example, is generating about 50 watts of heat. And so um, we can cover about a, a five minute phase transition of, of when you're kind of going from a an office to, you know, back outside to grab coffee and come back in. So it is limited. And that's really what we, what we call thermal loading in, in the garment. It's kind of limited to really the weight of the garment that we find is, you know, applicable. So there are some applications where we've actually made bedding where we can actually load up more material, more paraffin wax into the core of the fiber. Because, you know, while you're sleeping, for example, you have these kind of longer temperature oscillations, which are on the order of like half hour to an hour, essentially. Yeah. Awesome. While you were des describing that, you talked about how you focus on bio-based materials to uh, build your paraffin wax. And so there's actually pretty detailed reports of your company's environmental footprint on the website. And you mentioned that you're using more and more of these bio-based materials in your other products as well to reach net zero. We've had a couple other guests on the show that have talked about their usage of bio-based polymers, and they mess, uh, they mess, uh, sorry, and they uh, mentioned that when we use bio-based polymers, they've also had a significant performance challenge when uh, switching over from your more standard petroleum-based uh, plastics. Could you touch on your approach to net zero and how you guys aim to release super high quality products uh, with high fidelity while still trying to get net zero? Yeah, I think there's, there's kind of like two tracks that we're looking at in terms of you know reducing emissions. What we do is we do a full LC, uh, uh, life cycle analysis of our products. And we take into account the materials, the um, production process, transport, but also end of life uh, or, you know, use, use of, of our products. So the washing dry times for the garments. One of the things that we look at, the, the materials are almost half of the emissions for the product. So there's two areas that we look at. One is recycled materials. And then the other part is, is bio-based materials. So can we just completely avert using petroleum-based materials? Where we're we using actual, you know, kind of, uh, we're trying to basically switch over from virgin polyester PET to now recycled PET. So in one garment, we, we call it the Aero dress shirt, for example. Um, when you think of a dress shirt, about 40% of our sales are just white dress shirts. And so recycled polyester plastic has existed in the, the recycling stream for a long time. 
But one of the challenges of it is there's a lot of contaminants, right? Like you've got dye stuff and plasticizers from whatever product was there before. So what we really want to find is optically clear, pure PET. And so in this case, to make a white dress shirt, you know, when you're talking about fibers, because they're so fine, the structural integrity really matters. So you can't have kind of this variation and contamination. So we actually source our, our PT bottles from Japan. And one of the interesting things there is their recycling stream is, is very pure. If you go to an office there, like we go to our manufacturer, you'll see like six or seven bins in the office. And there's one that says, you know, clear PT, colored PT, clear glass, colored glass, you know, aluminum, steel, et cetera. And then finally, there's one bin that says it's got a flame on it and it means it's going to the incinerator. And because of that, we're able to get this pure stream of PET. We then ship that to Taiwan, where we're able to do a mechanical recycling process there. And what that allows us to do is create this draw texturized yarn. It's pretty cool. It's basically you, you, you crush into pellets and then you make a core that you extrude. And then through that spinning process, we do what's called draw texturizing. And so the fiber kind of looks like cotton candy. So it's super soft. It mimics cotton in many ways, but it also gives it this inherent stretch to it. So here's an instance where, for example, we've been able to create something that's optically white because we now have like a clear PT that we're starting with, and then we can dye it white. The second part is that we can also do some processing to it to allow it to actually feel more natural and give it some, some new behaviors. So in this case, I think when we think about recycled materials, it's really important to think about what, what's your stream of materials that you're starting with. And a white dresser is kind of, again, thinking about that use case for the product is really important. So we were able to reduce our emissions by 52% by using this process. One of the things is no longer having to spend energy extruding the crude oil, for example. You're not having to use heat to distill it um, and separate the, the you know, your, your esters. And so that's you know one part you're able to cleave right there. The other part, though, is that we're able to produce our, our products in a, a facility that's completely powered by solar power in, in Taiwan. So um, you kind of have to think about raw materials, but also the processing as well. On the bio-based materials front, yeah, what we're trying to do there is very similar. Again, um, divert you know our, our crude oil-based you know, PT to bio-based. And so we have this material called Kinetic. We work with Tore, it's a, it's a Japanese uh, chemical company that has developed a, a process where you can take uh, glucose, um, you can take it from kind of any kind of sugar feedstock, in our case, dent corn, you take a create and turn to ethylene glycol, and you can basically use a very similar fermentation dehydration process and create polyester, which is pretty cool because now you've taken basically a kind of a carbon capture approach where you're taking carbon dioxide, creating glucose, and then turning it into your PET versus um, using fossil fuels for that. So now the challenges again with with like uh, uh, strength and durability, we're not using 100%. So our material is 17% bio-based PET, and we're trying to increase this now to 33%. But it's we're not there yet. So I think it's a hybrid approach. And, and after I heard with you know, some similar uh, other guests, where whether it's po uh, polyurethanes, for example, still using a uh, still some you know crude oil-based PET or polyurethanes or PETs. Yeah. Cool. So I just had a question from the processing side, specifically with, with costs. How does it compare with, you know, the like 100% petroleum-based polymers, right, versus even this bio-based approach, even if it's not 100%? From the cost side, is, is there any comparison that you can help reveal to us in the audience? Yeah. So for our like aero dress shirt, where we're using like the PT yarn, uh, the recycled PT, it costs us about 15% more for that fabric. That being said, we're, we're climate neutral certified. And so basically for us as a brand, whatever emissions we can't reduce through our you know, material selection and kind of choosing our transport methods, 
we pay for in offsets. And so that's the calculation that we've made. And what we've actually found is this is one of these instances where it's actually cheaper to uh, go ahead and, and actually go with the recycled PT option than pay for the offsets. And so um, I think it's something that's really important as engineers and designers is one of the most important decisions you make in developing your product is what material are you using um, from an emission standpoint? And so I think building this kind of like materials intuition around what are the emissions of factors related to using certain types of aluminum, certain types of polyesters, for example, is really important because it can help you understand like, okay, if our goal is net zero, let's understand the financial trade-offs. Um, yeah. it's awesome. I, I also had a question. You talked about how you're kind of limited by how much recycle and PET you can use because of the worst mechanical properties. And you mentioned that you use mechanical recycling right now. Do you think there's ever a future where you could do something like chemical recycling in a large scale manner to be able to increase the properties of recycled uh, PET? Or do you think that's more uh, needs a lot more R&D and a lot more work before it could ever reach like mass scale? Yeah. So we're piloting a chemical recycling process now. We call it our Aero Zero uh, circularity system. So basically customers can send back our Aero Zero shirts where we've basically selected every part of the material to be made out of PT. And I'd say the challenge is the reverse logistics. And so it's very difficult to first get products into customers' hands. It's even harder to, to get the end-of-use product back into our, our, our same supplier. So I think, you know, one of the things that we've really tried to rely on as much as possible is like, what are the existing recycling streams that exist out there? Because they're mature, they're efficient, and it's better to use those both in terms of biodegradability or recyclability. Unfortunately, right now, like textile recycling, even though you could take our dress shirts and put them into like, you know, your recycling bin from like a material composition standpoint, we don't have the machines, like the machines right now are going to reject it immediately, right? Because they're optically sorting it and they don't know what to do with it. And so I think that's part of it, right? Is like, how do we actually, as we go to this area of monomer materials, so uh, just PT or just PU-based materials, how do we also have a recycling stream that can detect textiles, for example, just given that textile waste is a, a huge part of our recycling stream? So we already touched on a little bit of like the design that comes into when you're engineering these clothes, but it's not something that is talked about often, you know, and you have to, you mentioned some of the, the considerations, right? Like managing moisture while maintaining comfort, breathability, strength versus durability, um, and, you know, potentially biological factors as well. So one key component that, you know, David and I learned in, with our capstone design project is translating user needs to then design requirements in the manufacturing process. Can you talk about how you translate the needs of users or wearers of, of uh, your clothing to then the design and manufacturing processes? Yeah. So Ministry Supply, we're, we're what we call like a work leisure brand. So we're really designing our products for this use case of our customers working in like a hybrid office, for example. We know that a lot of them are now, you know, commuting in three to four times a week. They're oftentimes in urban cities. So they're taking metros, they're biking to work, they're walking to work. So active commute is a kind of a key use case there. But also um, they travel for work probably once, one one to two times a month. And that's something that we kind of find with our our super customers, the, the, the heavy users of our product. So we really kind of try to think of those three different use cases in mind. And things that matter a lot. I, I was surprised actually, is that like, you know, non-iron materials have existed for a long time, but people are still shocked uh, by that. And um, one of the great things about using a lot of the synthetic materials that we use is that they're thermoplastics. So 
you put them in the dryer, for example, they're going to return to their, their original state. So they're kind of self-ironing in that regard, right? And that's something that matters to our customer because they can spend almost, you know, five, seven dollars for you know dry cleaning their dress shirts. But probably more important to them is the fact that they don't have to spend 20 minutes, half an hour every week driving to the dry cleaner, picking stuff up, right? And that's really where we have to kind of think about, we thought the the, the biggest value proposition was not having to have underarm stains, for example, through sweating, right? And that's that's a, that was a key part. But really the machine washability, the fact that you could pack our garments and, you know, just body heat alone is going to cause that um, the, the polyester to actually return to its original state. So it actually kind of self, self-irons self by just wear, wear on its own. is really important to someone who is traveling for work, for example, right? Like they're on a flight all day. And, you know, sometimes if you're wearing a dress shirt or a suit, for example, and you're going straight to a meeting, you don't have time to change. And typically what would happen is that sweat would build up and it would cause wrinkles in a wool suit, for example. And in our, our case, that doesn't happen. So that's something where we really try to think about what, are, what is the material for uh, that's tied to a specific use case. So we have kind of two lines of products. One that's a little bit more focused on is kind of like more overt performance. Um, the Apollo shirt, for example, is kind of like, it's really focused on like active commuting, people who like to bike to work, for example, who want kind of maximum airflow in their garments. It's really comfortable, but it looks a little bit different. It looks a little bit more technical. And then we have this other product, the Aero shirt, for example, which is more incognito comfort. And that's where we really had to think about how do we provide moisture management and wrinkle resistance, but have it look like something that looks like your traditional, you know, for example, like Brooks Brothers white dress shirt, for example. What's the classic incumbent there? How can we replace what's in their wardrobe and make it very simple for someone to say like, hey, this looks like this shirt and my colleagues aren't going to know, right? So that's something that on a, from a material standpoint, you know, we were talking about, okay, moisture management, wrinkle resistance. But the other part was uh, also this like draw texturizing process that tufted the yarn. And so what it causes, like a lot of synthetic materials, a lot of polyesters, particularly maybe about 10 years ago, people thought of them as having a lot of sheen to them. And that made them look very, you know, technical or sporty. And so we spent a lot of time looking at how do we create, you know, performance fibers that don't have this sheen. And so how can we refract light in different, different, you know, reflect light in different angles um, through the draw texturing, draw texturizing process, but also the cross section of the yarn itself. So that's that's another um, angle there. The other part is looking at dyeing processes. So, um, for example, we use in many cases a lot of our, our our synthetic fibers will actually have two different types of polyesters. One that's a regular polyester, and one that's a cationic dyed polyester. So that means that when it's in the dye bath, one is going to absorb the dye bath the dye, and the other is going to reject it. And so it allows to create this really cool heathering effect visually. And it makes it look more like an organic fabric, like linen or cotton or wool, for example. And so that's something that we think is really important from, from a customer needs perspective. But, you know, when we, we think about material science, we think a lot about well, what's the fundamental structure, what's the, what are the properties that we're looking for, and the, the chemical structure itself. So one thing we kept on hearing from people is like, okay, performance fabrics, they, they work really well when I'm working out, right? When you're at the gym, for example, you're on the treadmill, you're running outside, there's a lot of airflow. There's a high thermal gradient between your skin and the outside. There's also a high moisture gradient as well. So that is driving a lot of the diffusion in those materials. But when you're um, long haul flight, for example, or you're sitting in a meeting for, for a long time, it's not as kind of overt, that, 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 that temperature gradient. And so what we actually need to look at is how do we manage not just liquid sweat, but moisture vapor? So we kept hearing from customers like, okay, I love cotton because it's so breathable and it's it's breathable for the first couple hours. But as soon as I start walking around, then I get that kind of liquid sweat happening. And so we found that people were really 
kind of uh, responding to is this characteristic of the fact that a material is hydroscopic. So it means that it pulls in moisture vapor or, or moisture itself into the core of the fiber. And so what we've done is we've characterized, you know, a lot of the fibers that we're creating or we're using on their moisture re regain potential. So polyester, for example, can only regain about 0.4% of its weight and mass in terms of, of uh, moisture vapor. But you look at merino wool, for example, that can be 18 to 19%. And the reason that's important is because when you create a, a drier microclimate, it prevents bacteria from growing. So you don't get odor kind of building up in the garment. And that's one of the reasons why people really like merino wool for kind of active use. Cotton is kind of right in the middle at eight and a half percent. And what we found is that there's some um, cellulosic fibers like viscose right around 12 to 13% moisture regain, which have a lot of the, you know, similar breathability to more breathability than, than, than cotton does. But also we can change the surface structure. So we can extrude the viscose yarns to have channels that facilitate liquid moisture wicking. So what viscose is, is you're taking a cellulosic yarn, so you're taking wood pulp and you're breaking it down to its fundamental, you know, cellulose monomers, and then you're rebuilding it into a new yarn. And what's different from cotton is, well, cotton, you're kind of stuck with the structure that, you know, the, the, the fiber naturally grew in, but with viscose, we can change that structure. So you kind of get the best of both worlds. You're getting a bio-based fiber that's, you know, kind of taking in carbon dioxide, turning that into the structure of the cellulose of the garment itself, or the fiber itself, but you're also controlling the structure as well. So um, I think that's something that's been super cool to as, as kind of as we look at you know the future of the materials for clothing, there's been this wave of cotton, linen, et cetera, you know, kind of these traditional materials. We're right now in the kind of peak of synthetic performance materials. But when we look to the future, we think it's these cellulosic materials, um, these bio-based materials that are also controlled in terms of their construction and geometry. So that's what we're pretty excited about. Maybe jumping back a little bit, you've also noted previously that it's difficult to have readily available emissions data to track the footprint of specific items. When your brain is so focused on the net zero, uh, it's kind of difficult to compare to others in the space. So what do you think could be uh, done in the space to have better dissemination of the data to the consumer like me who would care about uh, the end of life and the beginning of life? So like one thing that we've started doing on our garments, we actually have a, a, a little tag on it, which says, here's all the, the tests that we've we've uh, performed on the garment. So for durability, for performance as well, but also what are, what are the emissions of the production and use of that garment? So, and it's kind of like a nutrition label. So it's kind of helping people understand, like, we just need to understand at the first point, like how many calories are in a a cookie, for example, right? And we're still at that stage as a, as a society where we don't really have a carbon intuition, right? So the first thing is understanding that. And then the second part is like, well, what are the choices that we can make to reduce that number? In a lot of our cases, it's using the bio-based materials or the recycled materials in particular. And the, the other part that we consider is also, you know, when we talk about uh, consumer use, you know, most folks who, you know, if you're not dry cleaning your garments, you're using, you know, traditional tumble dry low and, and a machine wash cold tumble dry low. That's what we, we design our products around so that you don't have to heat the water during the washing cycle. And that you also don't have to use excess heat. So, you know, most dryers are running off electricity or natural gas. And so when you use cotton, for example, the dry time can be four times as long, right? So you have to think about the emissions for every time you're washing that garment. And a typical garment lasts, you know, 25 to 50 washes, for example. So that's, you know, one part of the life cycle that we really need to consider. So 
having these quick dry materials has this added gain of reducing the emissions, you know, about a quarter of the dry time, just through the fact that, you know, it can't pull that moisture into the core of the fiber. So that's that's something that we sort of have to educate and kind of understand as well as, as, as consumers and, and, and also as brands communicating that. And so as we talk about the future of this space, you know, with Ministry of Supply, you've already managed to implement NASA-level technology into businessware, but I want to talk about what new innovations you're looking forward to or working on currently. And one question that, that I had that kind of coincides with that is you've touched on this idea of like absorbing heat, absorbing energy, and that led me to think about e-textiles. I was wondering if that's something that is potentially in, in the works or something you guys are thinking about at, at Ministry of Supply. Yeah, e-textiles are, are super interesting because one of the challenges we have with kind of traditional passive materials is we're really dependent on basically you know, moisture gradients, thermal gradients to create a, 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 a change in functionality of the garments. And so we've done some research. Um, we had a, a DOD grant with the Self-Assembly Lab at MIT focused on climate active materials. So materials that react to moisture and vapor, uh, I'm sorry, uh, that react to moisture and heat. And what it does is it allows pores to open up. But one of the challenges that we found is that the temperature gradients and moisture gradients that we need were so wide that it didn't really correlate with something that a normal customer would experience. And so that's, that's a challenge that we have with sometimes the physical materials themselves. Now, when we look at e-textiles, we have this other dimension where we can create both power generation um, or emission or, or act, uh, actuation um, using an electronic signal, right? Which is kind of a different dimension um, there. And so we created this garment. It's uh, called the Mercury Intelligent Heated Garment. We launched it about four or five years ago now, and it uses carbon fiber heating elements um, in the garment. So there's two on the chest and then one big one in the back. And our most recent version actually emits up to 30 watts of heat. And it uses a USB-C battery pack, for example, to power it. But one of the things that was really striking that we learned was that your metabolic rate is, is really tied to your activity level, right? And so if you're standing still right now, like, for example, like your core is generating about 50 watts of heat across the surface. But if you're walking, you're starting to create about 100 watts of heat. So think about kind of two incandescent light bulbs, right? And then if you're walking quite fast, that's actually 150 watts. So three incandescent bulbs of heat. That's that's a 3x delta there in terms of heat, right? And so this was something that was really interesting because when we think about dressing up for the cold, we oftentimes think about that moment we walk out the door, right? So we put on a very, very big puffy jacket. And then, you know, 10 minutes later, you've been walking to the bus stop or whatever. And by the time you get there, you're, you're sweating already, right? And so... What we've done is we've actually taken an accelerometer in addition to a temperature sensor to detect what's the outside temperature, but also what's your activity level. And so what we do is we have this very simple algorithm that's basically taking checking what's the outside temperature, what's your activity level, and using that to calibrate how much heat output do we need in the garment. So we have a, an app on it on the, the garment as well where you can actually say I'm too hot or too cold. And it's kind of like a Nest learning thermostat. And so it learns your preferences and it allows it to create a better thermal model specific for you. And so the the textile itself is pretty simple. It's a, you know resistive heating um, through the carbon fiber itself. But it, it does show us kind of the potential of these kind of smart materials because right now so much of kind of wearables has really focused on kind of data acquisition, right? Like what's my heart rate? How many steps have I taken? But what we think about the kind of the future of apparel to be is like, well, we should we can take this data in, but we should act on it, right? We should, like when you're wearing a jacket, you're wearing that jacket to keep you dry, to keep you warm, right? And how can we do that in a better way? So that's really kind of where we see the, the future of e-textiles. 
That's super cool. I guess uh, one, one thing that I have a question on is when you talk about embedding things in the textile, how do you also have like the other properties that you talked about, like uh, the like basically self-ironing, the base change materials, how does that interact with it? And so do you have to start to kind of pull in different technologies for different shirts? Uh, and then is the final goal finding a way to code this with all your technologies, like one ultimate shirt? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's kind of a great learning in like like multivariate testing and, and, and product development. So our first year um, before we launched on Kickstarter, we were doing using some kind of off-the-shelf fabrics that had kind of focused on different properties, like a open work construction for breathability, another one that had face change materials, but was kind of a traditional construction. And so we tested about six different fabrics and we do these small lots of 50 shirts at a time, some hand sewing them ourselves, sometimes working with like a local tailor. And then we we would actually sell them at the business school cafeteria. My, my co-founder went, went to the business school at MIT and was also, you know, very passionate about the space. And so we would go around selling our shirts and we would see what people's responses were to them. And I think in product development, one of the, the big things I, I always suggest people is one, you know, talk to your customers, but also try to sell your product because seeing people pull out their wallets and understand whether they're willing to buy or not buy the product is actually some of the best feedback. And one of the things we learned is actually reasons why people didn't buy our product, right? They didn't like the fabrics that were too slick and shiny, right? They wanted shirts that had a little bit more crisp structure, right? But they really liked this, the concept of the face change material and feeling it um, themselves. So we basically took in these kind of five features that we learned from these different fabrics in terms of moisture management, stretch, et cetera. And then created our own custom fabric um, with first a mill called Textilini in, in LA and then later in Taiwan with Liang Tech. So yeah, I think that's one of the ways sometimes to kind of accelerate materials development is to do these kind of uh, these tests of one feature at a time and figure out which ones are important. So yeah, that's I think that's uh, kind of one of the things that was really helpful in, in, in that user testing there. But yeah. Well, I think Benita and I both think that you've done an excellent job of translating your passions and hobbies into your work and really passionate about trying to push the frontier of what we call clothing. Uh, do you have any advice for students who are also wanting to follow a similar path, but maybe are troubling, having trouble finding the link between their passions and their jobs? Yeah, I think I, I was very fortunate to have some internships that I think really helped bridge academia and like commercial applications or industrial applications. And I'd say like really take advantage of those summers um, or summers or, you know, those winter breaks, because uh, it gives you an opportunity to get outside of the classroom and see the application. And I always remember coming back and saying like, hey, I, I, I just learned about PCMs in my internship, right? Okay, now we're talking about thermal transfer in class. I'm so much more excited to learn about it, right? And so I think seeing applications and then theory and doing them in tandem, you'll find that school is way more fulfilling that way. So instead of this kind of old methodology, which is like learn all the theory and then later in your career, see it in practice. So I think pairing the two is really helpful. And the other part is like really kind of be open to other um, industries. I think this was something that like I wasn't aware of that in the kind of sports tech industry that you're taking human factor specialists like mechanical engineers additive manufacturing, that all of these were coming together. And that's where a lot of my exposure came from was the industrial kind of internships, because that was a place to kind of see many different types of engineers working together. And the problem was a materials problem, right? But we weren't all materials engineers. So I think I think something that I find quite exciting is that like materials have a big impact in other fields of engineering. And 
being able to to speak and understand the fundamentals is important. And you can always work with a materials engineer who's an expert in that, but having that fluency in the language is, is important as well. Sweet. I had another question because a lot of our past guests have given advice on, you know, how to find their passions or how to find what you're passionate about and then pursue that. But with you, I feel like you found from a young age, kind of, you knew like, hey, you wanted to create the next Gore-Tex, right? Like you knew that as a scout, et cetera. So how did you, how are you able to take that passion and then curate a path from the get-go to ultimately get you to where you want to be? I believe, you know, you mentioned Kim Blair, like a mentor would help in that, but can you just give more advice on how to curate that path? I think, you know, a, a couple things is like write down those problems that kind of like they just kind of stick in your brain, right? Like you keep on thinking about. And I think for for me, it was like I keep on going runs and and I was I kept on being frustrated with, you know, my my running gear or camping gear, for example, right? And it's these problems, I think, that really motivate the learning and then also the prototyping and, and a kind of invention that happens naturally. Right. And so um I think that's that's one part is kind of like figuring out problem-based motivation. And then sometimes you'll also find materials that you just like think are just super cool. How can I find the applications for them? And a lot of times, like we sometimes talk about market pull versus technology push. I think that's a little bit of both, right? And so I found that like, you know, from a passion standpoint, the more I learned about the problem, I learned about the materials and I learned about the materials, I'd figure out new applications. So it's kind of like a, a cyclical process there. The other part is like, I really encourage, like when we have like interns or folks that we're hiring, one of the things I ask, I ask for the resume, but I also ask for their portfolio. And that may seem a little strange. Like we sometimes think about portfolios as just a, like for designers and, and whatnot. But I actually say like, assemble what you can if, you know, the IP is available, for example, uh, a portfolio of your projects and just have it handy. It's, it can be a website now, for example. And sometimes in conversations with like an advisor, for example, just you bring it up, you can share it, and they can they can start to see like what you're interested in. And that's really what I found. I had my chemical engineering advisor was early on was saying like, hey, there's something here. You should continue to work on this. And I, I can't thank him enough for for kind of giving the confidence to say like, hey, like while maybe, you know, traditional chemical engineering is about, you know, petroleum engineering and synthetic biology, like you're really passionate about materials. Go focus on that. And let's let's help you plot your course. Right. And then with uh, Dr. Blair, for example, it was about kind of figuring out what are these like industrial applications, right? And kind of thinking about the sports applications there. So I think the portfolio is a good way for you to kind of have this repository of all the work that you've done, right? And kind of the problems that you're solving. And when you share that with particular advisors, like they'll, they'll be able to see something and kind of help you c connect with like other other people in their network as well that may make, make a, a good, good next step. So I think it's being a little bit prepared uh, for, you know, for that so that those connections can happen. Awesome. So maybe to wrap up this episode, where can listeners go to learn more about you and, and Ministry of Supply? Yeah. So one of the best places is, is actually check out our website. We have two tabs on our uh, at ministrysupply.com. Yeah, there's one that's called Innovation, and you can learn all about our material science. We have got a bunch of pages that kind of deep dive into bio-based materials, our kind of circularity programs and even our LCA analysis. The other part is, is our, our planet tab, and you can dive deeper into yeah, the bio-based materials and, and kind of you know, further in terms of our, our manufacturing processes. So yeah, I think that's, I, I read a lot of the blog posts and whatnot there because I, I feel like the materials and manufacturing are things that are, we're really passionate about. And it's part of our brand um, is, is to, to dive deep and nerd out there. So uh, I hope others can kind of uh, find some use there um, as well, yeah. 
Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Gihan, for joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure and we learned a lot and we're excited to see Ministry of Supply continue to grow. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's, it's been a pleasure being on, the, on here. As a materials engineer, we can make an impact in nearly every single industry. But with that versatility comes a lot of options to choose from. So if you have no idea which position or industry is right for you, you're not alone. I've been there, I've done that. But just for a moment, imagine narrowing down your ideal role and company within the week. Imagine being able to secure your dream offer without having to apply to hundreds of job openings. Our online course, MSE Academy, includes video testimonials, resumes, interview prep, and mentorship from materials engineers who have been in your shoes. We also connect our members with companies and industry professionals in our expansive network to help accelerate your job search process as much as possible. To learn more and get started, simply click the link in the show notes below. And if you enroll within the next 24 hours, we'll add three bonus career-related resources. I hope to see you there.